This is a Podcast Now production. I drank some mouthwash. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm really, and I got into my car to drive across the island to take one for the team. And I got to his office fully prepared <laughs> to record a podcast. Everybody, come on, move on. <laughs> Fully Prepared with Andy King. It was a bit of a role play to understand how the Queen might engage with me on the real day. And in fact, the Queen's private secretary would mimic the voice and persona of the Queen. Once you get to a certain level of fame, you'll know this through your story, you become less of an individual, but more so a representation of ideas. I'm not saying that Will Smith and Chris Rock weren't already famous, but this will go down in history. This one minute period of time of Chris making a joke and Will's reaction will go down in history as one of the biggest fuck ups that ever happened at the Oscars. People ask me, David, what's the greatest KPI of your work so far? And I would say, I don't have one. I have an EPI, an emotional performance indicator. And that would be that I'm no longer classified in the workplace as brave for sharing my story because people feel empowered to do the same. Whether I've had a great day or a horrible day, I'll write three things I'm grateful for and three things that were great that I experienced that day. And just framing my mind to look for the positives in my day and the achievements in the day just like flips my mood. Your mind has the ability to spiral into just the worst directions. And, you know, Craig will always say to me, what's wrong? I'm like, everything. <laughs> Young people like me are too scared to fail because everything that we do now is on a pedestal on social media. We can't fail in silence. I could teach you a few things. You could blow your way to the top if you wanted to, David, but probably. <laughs> <laughs> I always say we are both the, the ultimate team players, Andy, sometimes. Say hey, hey to everybody, and welcome everybody back to Fully Prepared with Andy King. I still like that title a lot more. I miss a little bit of the old take two, but um, Fully Prepared. I think that's a good description of me and my guest today, David McIntosh from across the pond, a friend of Craig's. What an amazing you know connection we made months ago, and I was blessed to be on David's podcast who, by the way, is going to be sharing a lot of what he's up to and how he spreads love, just like I do, on this side of the pond. But we're talking the Scottish love. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, David, welcome. It's a privilege to be on, Andy. Um, I loved our last chat. We impacted quite a lot of lives. Some of the content went viral. People loved hearing about Buckfast, which is a Scottish fortified wine. Well, not Scottish fortified wine, but uh, a culture craze in Scotland, at least, um, invented in England but yeah we touched so many lives through your story through uh, the anecdotes that I brought and I'm just so so delighted that you've invited me onto your platform uh, with your listeners and congrats on the launch of the podcast it's amazing some of your, your guests have been amazing I've enjoyed the episodes so um, I'm glad that you're reaping as much fun from the episodes as I have uh, on my, my show. Absolutely well you know it is sort of fascinating where I'm sure like you I have such an array of guests that come on and it's always fun to hear so many different perspectives and so many different stories. 
Um, but I especially like your story, David. Will you share with the audience, starting, let's talk about your daytime job, talking about spreading love. Give us a quick picture. So I guess it would be worthwhile taking it back to the history of my job and where I kind of stumbled into that career. Um, but I joined an apprenticeship program here in the UK at an organization called KPMG. Um, and that was facilitated by an organization called the Social Mobility Foundation. And prior to that, I didn't know what an accountant was or a management consultant was. Um, I had no one in my family that resonated with a professional title like that. But thankfully, through an amazing charity here in the UK, I was put on a lucrative apprenticeship program and found myself trying loads of new things, um, loads of different service lines and departments here. But I found myself in public sector management consulting uh, because I followed this new North Star of uh, doing good for others. And that North Star was predicated uh, and decided after quite a serious event in my life, which was losing my dear mum in 2020. Um, because I come from this kind of lower socioeconomic background, I had this desire to make a lot of money. And I was told as a young man, accountants and management consultants make a lot of money. You could be one. And as you can imagine, um, the, I, the, the jackpot uh, kind of sound effect was going on in my head when I was told that. And I self-predicated my entire career towards that. But unfortunately, like I said, my mother passed away in 2020. And I realized that I wanted to fulfill this North Star of sharing love, but in the, in the sense of doing good for others. So alongside my day job, I started a UK social mobility network at KPMG, which helps to attract and progress socioeconomically diverse talent uh, within our workplace. So I've had some amazing public speaking opportunities through that. Um, spoken to some amazing high ticketed uh, guests, uh, sorry, uh, individuals. And through that same vein, I started my podcast, which aims to bridge the gap between disadvantaged young people and aspiring people like you, Andy, in a very digestible manner. So that's, I guess, a whistle-stop tour of uh, David McIntosh in a nutshell today. I love it. I love it. Well, David, let's talk about, obviously, um, I graduated, well, I, I left university and I went to work for an executive search firm. And I placed people in jobs for the first 10 years of my career. And I focused on placing people in sales and marketing management positions and sales and marketing um, directors positions. And one of the things that I would explain to people during their job searches were, was that it's good to be diligent. It's, it's amazing to be hardworking. But a lot of the job search is is predicated on who you know and luck and timing, right? And so how challenging can that be when you're coming um, not from an affluent socioeconomic background, but from one that is challenged and that you don't have all the contacts and you don't have the rich neighbors living down the street that you can tap. You don't have your father's best friend from the country club that you can have lunch with. And one of the things that I have dedicated a lot of my working career to, or, and, you know, in a lot of my podcasts, you'll hear me talk about the wonderful world of interns and what an amazing way to get into some of these larger companies or smaller companies doing great things, but making the connections and 
obviously um, creating the luck and timing. What else do you focus on with these kids that are coming from rougher backgrounds who don't have the connections who are trying to get into the working world? Well, I think what, and it's, I guess it's a few steps back to before the enter a workplace like ours, but one thing that I've loved to see over the last decade is how social media and digital content has leveled up this aspect of um, having poor role modelship and lack of connections. Yes, our inner circle are the people that are in our family and friends of family and cousins and those who live amongst us, but now we can look online and see David McIntosh who's got a podcast or Andy King who was on Netflix. We can have digital role models essentially be part of our inner circle. And that's the I guess the kind of mission state of my podcast mission statement of my podcast is to outlay in a transparent manner all these different stories in plain English without the technical information so that people can f follow that same role uh, that same path. Um, so I guess what we can do collectively is turn up to the world as our true selves, embrace our identity, embrace our weirdness, embrace the fact that we come from a low socioeconomic background if we do, because unlike sex, unlike race, class and socioeconomic background is invisible and it takes empowering, transparent, bold leaders to pave the way by just sharing their story. And until they do that, um, people like me at my age category feel more comfortable uh, turning up to the world as we do. You know, it's, it's inspiring for what you're saying. And I'm hoping, obviously, that that carries through as well with the general kind of overall recruiting mentality and hiring mentality of companies like KPMG. Because it is, it is challenging. And I, but then there's like, I was having a discussion with a friend of mine who works in the educational consulting placement world where he's hired by parents to help identify the proper boarding schools and universities for their kids. And what he's found, and I think I can remember even when I was young, that a lot of the top universities in the world are focusing in the, on bringing in minority kids and kids, kids from disadvantaged neighborhoods. And they're really trying to focus on that diversification piece, which I think is really important. It's now become a reverse discrimination because now kids that just come from a normal family who get good grades at, at you know, in, in their in the high school are having trouble getting into some of these top universities because they're not like what we're talking about as far as people being from more of a disadvantaged background. So it's sort of a funny flip of a coin here, right? I mean, it's a two-edged sword, especially in the UK. Unlike other con countries the UK is probably I'd say from the outside and the leading promoter of apprenticeships where you can go work for an organization straight from high school opposed to going into university and by doing so you can get a university degree whilst working or you can do a professional or technical um, qualification and the term apprentice in the UK the kind of archetype of, a, of an apprentice would be like a bricklayer or a plumber or a joiner uh, very blue-collar jobs, but in fact, these huge organisations such as KPMG have not only incorporated apprenticeships, but used them as a, a great vehicle for social mobility. But I think that affluent parents have 
realize that their young people can get ahead by earning and learning at the same time. And it might have discouraged um, those from a less privileged background out of those traditional apprenticeships that were once marketed towards us. But what I think organizations could do better of is how they market apprenticeships. Um, if I look at any corporate in the UK and look at their recruitment website, it will show um, it will show the apprenticeship programs and the technical qualifications and the technical skills that they might um, obtain. But what it doesn't show is what that enables for the individual. As a disadvantaged young person, I would love to see a case study of David McIntosh that shows David McIntosh gained his chartered accountancy qualification and he saved for driving lessons and he bought a car or he treated his mum to a holiday. Because as a disadvantaged young people, that's what's sexy about an apprenticeship, that you can skip university and go straight into employment and earn without having debt. And that enables these great experiences that we might not have had because of the nature of our background. So with that kind of uh, direction, it sounds as though um, you're kind of a firm believer in um, gaining experience on the job is practically just as valuable as gaining experience at, or gaining an education at university. I mean, and I didn't um, complete my degree and I used to have this discussion constantly with people because I would say, listen, I mean, I went to work with, an in, with two internships, one like an apprenticeship, but one was with the governor of the state where I was at university and I became one of his chief aides running his press conferences. And then the second internship was the executive recruitment firm where I went down to just be an intern at a firm in Florida for two months and ended up staying over six years and becoming one of the top producers of the company. And I proved to everybody that, you know, the university degree wasn't the end all, but it does demonstrate. And I think it does. Um, I know for many, um, it teaches you self-discipline. It teaches you that you need to be in class on time. It teaches you a lot about socialization, right? And that's a big key, I think, for young kids today, especially potentially coming out of a lower socioeconomic background is, you know, being able to kind of fine tune your social skills is something vitally important, right? Um, because you're walking, if you're walking into a company like a KPMG, I mean, you want to be able to socialize and feel at the same level and, and not feel handicapped or not feel like you're not as good as anybody else. Um, do you find that that's a sort of a challenge at times too, that the socialization aspect? Oh, 100% Andy. Um, it's something that we often see within the broader workplace, not just at KPMG, but just everywhere. Um, there's these unwritten rules um, of how you kind of communicate in a hierarchy, how you act when you go out for social dinners, and these are kind of unwritten rules that we're not provided information with because of the nature of our background, because our parents never worked in these industries. And one of the things that I'm helping develop at the moment is essentially what I call a hereditary tool set. So it will be these unwritten rules written, essentially. So when a new joiner comes from a background like I have, they understand how they dress in the workplace or how they sign off an email or speak to someone more senior than them because I've never had this experience before. And it's easier, it's easy for our more privileged peers to think, oh, that's, everyone knows that, that's innate, that's um, part of their source code. But for people like me, um, I didn't know how to tie my tie before I started employment. 
Um, so it just shows you the disparage uh, between different classes within the UK and how they perceive the value of these soft skills. Okay, so on that note, um, let's talk about the wonderful world of slang in the UK. So okay. um, it's a crazy when I um, when I see Craig communicating with his best friends and I see the texts and I can't even read most of them. It's sort of a um, it's this crazy slang world, and and whether it's just Scotland, it's Ireland, it's it's England, it's you go down the list where I can't I can use a couple examples like Craig always writes like, and his mother will say the same thing. Um, how are yous yous y o u s? No no no. How are you guys or how are you all? But not yous or. I can't even, I'm sure, David, you've got all the slangs in the world. I mean, it's hysterical. Is it difficult to like curb that when you hit the workplace? Yeah, we actually did a really great um, presentation on uh, embracing your regional accent uh, recently within the workplace because there is stigmas of how our accents are perceived. Um, some, in other firms, uh, I've heard stories where client lead partners will not put junior colleagues with an accent in front of uh, clients because it's risky um, but we had a really great event at talking about embracing your slang embracing your accent and there is some funny funny slang uh, terms that we use in Scotland but specifically in Craig and I's hometown there's this one word that we use and Craig will he may have mentioned it before and it's the word gads spelled g-a-d-s do you have any yeah. idea what that might mean? Andy? Gads. It's like, oh my gosh. It's like, yeah. wow. Is it? Yeah. But Gads. Like, oh yeah. But, but like, ooh. And no one outside <laughs> of the West Coast of Scotland knows what that means. It's so bespoke to the area. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard Craig use that before. Oh, I have. Absolutely. It is funny because um, I think the challenge is, as you may know, David, Craig has started selling real estate here in the United States, which is pretty exciting. And um one of the things that his training involved, um, we're doing hundred or more cold calls a day to people, and they get all these lead-generated lists, and they say, "Oh, David McIntosh was recently on his computer, and he's looking for a house, and he wants to spend three hundred thousand dollars, and he looks as though he's looking for a two-bedroom, two-bathroom, and he's looking for something with a garden, you know, and then." somehow your name and number will come up on a list and Craig will call you. And I think it really was challenging at first because, you know, I can remember when I was, Craig and I were first together, we would call from the car to my sisters and not one person could understand one effing word he was saying. They're like, can you slow down? I have no idea what you just said. And Craig would just laugh, you know, no, no. but I think he's gotten very more cognizant and aware of, articulating and speaking slower. I'm sure it's, you know, coming into any foreign country, that's the way. But now, as a realtor in the United States, his, his Scottish accent is a huge, valuable tool because everybody loves an accent and everybody loves a Scottish boy and everybody. And so it's become a power thing for him, which is great. I've experienced that myself. I remember... In November 2021, I was down in London for uh, an awards ceremony and I, I won I won Best Apprentice at the Management Consultancy Association Awards here in the UK. 
It was a great big deal. And we went out to celebrate afterwards. I was wearing the bow tie, the tux. I felt like James Bond, but I had my Scottish accent, of course. And I was out in this club. And I think, and I, I wonder what your perception of this, Andy, is. But Americans, they understand Scotland small, but I think they sometimes think it's smaller than what it is. Um, because I had one girl say, oh my God, you're from Scotland. And I said, yeah, I'm Scottish. And she said, do you know Alan from Aberdeen? As if there was only one Alan from Aberdeen in the entirety of Scotland. But just to play along with it, of course, I said, Alan, of course I know Alan. I went for a drink with Alan last week. No way do you know her. I know him. And uh, she, she was so shocked until I told her, in fact, there's probably about 500,000 Alans in, in the UK, or at least in Scotland. Um but yeah, yeah, I, I, I play in my accent when I'm outside of the UK. Oh, you got it. I think it's a great marketing tool. Absolutely. And hopefully, you know, if you play it with confidence, right, David, that's like the key and not be insecure about it or not feel like, oh boy, just hold it, control it and own it, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think it... I find myself at times changing my accent to suit whoever I'm speaking with and not from a sense of allowing them to understand me, but just so I fit in. Um, and I lose a part of my identity when I do that. I lose what makes me me, my unique selling point. My I lose my duty to the world, which is to present up as my true self. And the one moment that I remember doing it so vividly was when I had the wonderful opportunity uh, to speak with Her Majesty the Queen over Zoom. And... That was in December 2020 where I shared my story, my whole social mobility story coming from the background that I do. But I displayed it in this kind of more upper class, posh, non-Scottish accent. And because of some technical difficulties on the Queen's side, that one clip went viral. It was on ITV News at 6. Um, it was on Sky News. It was on like Indian news sources. But my f local friends from Presswick caught on to the video and the first thing they said was like, David, you sound like a wanker. That's the first thing they said to me. You sound like a dickhead. You don't talk like that. Like when you're down the pub with us, that's not how you speak. And I was like, of course I'm not going to speak like that with Her Majesty the Queen. Me and the Queen aren't sharing a bottle of Buckfast. Of course I'm going to polish my voice. They had some sort of grand expectation that I would use the word gads in front of the Queen or something. Um, but yeah, that was the first realisation that I wasn't turning up to these public speaking opportunities. Uh, with my thick Scottish Ayrshire accent, I guess. Oh my word. Were you shitting in your pants when you were talking to her? I was shitting in my pants before I started talking to her. Um, but when I met her, she was just like a sweet old grandma. She was awesome. She really, really cared. Um, she asked really uh. personal questions. But I guess a funny story from that experience, though, the moment I was shitting myself more was the rehearsal to speaking with the Queen. Um, I spoke with the Queen's private secretary and it was a bit of a role play to understand how the Queen might engage with me on the real day. And in fact, the Queen's private secretary would mimic the voice and persona of the Queen. And at that moment, I was shitting myself uh, more because I wasn't sure whether to dress him as your, Her Majesty or Your Majesty or by his name. Um, but on the day when I spoke to the real Queen, because how warm and I guess how elderly she was, she reminded me of my grandmother. Uh, and it was uh, far easier than speaking to her private secretary, that's for sure. Oh my gosh. What's the, what's the craziest question she asked you? Or the most memorable? 
Um, what I realised actually at that moment in time was how small, how small I guess Scotland is, but the world is. I was I started to talk about Presswick, my hometown where Craig's from, uh, and explain it was on the west coast of Scotland. I spoke about the neighbouring towns, and she just interrupted me and said, "I've been there," and like that almost blew my mind. The fact that Craig. Her and I have, I guess, all been in the same town at, at one point in time. Um, but she paid close affinity towards my dad, actually, because my dad was a guard at Buckingham Palace in the 1980s. He was in the Falklands War, uh, but also guarded Buckingham's, Buckingham Palace. He guarded Windsor Castle, and uh, he was a guard at Princess Diana's wedding, uh, and has done Tripping the Colour, so she was so keen to hear about his story. Um, through the army and I guess he shed such an affinity towards me and him because of that. Wow. Your dad must have some pretty amazing stories. He should write a book. If he could write and read, then pro probably, yeah. He he's not too great at that, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I've not invited him on my I've not invited him on my podcast for a reason, Andy. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Well, you know, maybe someday. Someday uh, he could be a surprise guest. If you want some um, Scottish okay. slang, you can invite him on, Andy. That's for sure. That's all he speaks in. <laughs> My word. So, David, so after talking with the Queen, how do you feel she feels about Harry? I think she must look at me with my red hair and think I'm a suitable replacement. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, really don't, I really don't know. But if that role were to become vacant... I think I've got quite a good CV to apply for it. I mean, I'm very pale and pasty, I'm ginger, and I love doing things for social causes. So um, my there CV's ready for you, Liz. Oh, <laughs> perfect, perfect. Well, it does. it's fascinating to me when so many people will say the Queen is just so old and so detached and just, you know, so far away from reality. And I just don't get that feeling. And then I keep thinking, well... <clears throat> Harry was so close to his grandmother, you know, and is it heartbreaking for her to see what's happened? Um, do they still communicate regularly? It sort of fascinates me. It fascinates me too. I wish I was uh, within the internal communica communications between Buckingham Palace, the Queen and, and the family, that's for sure, especially uh, in light of recent yeah, events. I just, it's sort of, when you think of William kind of always doing the right thing and being nearby and married to Kate. And, you know, I think everything's going to go just on a straight line for him. And Harry's just the little rebel, which I love. And I think he's just trying to mix things up a little bit. And, but I feel like on their new platform, you know, they're still dedicating and devoting a lot of time to spreading love and goodness and doing the right thing around the world. So whatever, whatever direction that goes in, I don't know. I mean, I'm curious, Andy, um, from an American's perspective, when you picture Scotland as the archetype of Scotland, including the Queen, or would you classify the Queen as being representative of England? What is the kind of stereotypical um, ideologies that come to mind when an American thinks of Scotland? <sighs> um, I, I don't have a huge attachment to Scotland and the Queen for some funny reason because probably because Craig doesn't that much so <laughs> I don't feel like there's that big of a closeness there and um, you know when I think of Scotland I just think more of lush green a lot of rain and football <laughs> but then I think of the same as 
for the UK, for, for England. But I don't have that. I don't think the average American has that kind of uh, perception of Scotland and the Queen being an integral part of each other, you know? That and, makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. I Leadership. I mean, who and what? Like, I feel so bad right now and with this whole Ukrainian situation and... I feel like Biden's been trying to do the right things and on and on, but he doesn't want to create a world war. And I know a lot of the leaders are looking to him to make bigger decisions. And um, I think being the queen or the president or any world leader is a thankless job. Don't you feel like that, David? It's a thankless job. I do. I do. But even in a more micro sense, when we are given even the platforms and followings that we do, I start to believe at times it can look like a thankless job because once you get to a certain level of fame and you'll you'll know this uh, through your story, you become less of an individual but more so a representation of ideas and people don't sympathise uh, with you as the individual and they don't sympathise me as me with me as an individual and I notice that when, uh, for example, one of my clips go viral and I get a little bit of hate. And I'm like, you don't even know me. You're not involved in any conversations I have in the podcast. You've just taken 10 seconds uh, and presumed my representation of ideas and then spitballed your opinion back to me on that. And I just think that is kind of part and parcel of putting yourself online is, or being put on any sort of pedestal is that you become less of a human being and more of a representation of ideas that can be uh, easily slagged or tarnished or given hate uh, to I feel when you step back and you think, oh, you know, as a young person, you're like, oh my gosh, how amazing it would be to be famous. I'd love to be famous. I want to be a celebrity. I want to do this on and on and on. And then sometimes, you know, you'll hear people say, be careful for what you wish for. And I don't know what, you know, what, what your guy, what, what, what you're feeling across the pond right now, but this whole situation, we don't have to dwell on it too much for sure. But with Will Smith at the Oscars, I mean, just crazy and there it is somebody who's basically reached the pinnacle of his career winning an oscar being in front of millions of people and then what comes with that david well i'll tell you what comes with it it can come with like toxicity depression um such pressure you know and when he i think i guess it was denzel washington who said to him after the episode just said you know just be careful will because when you reach the top and you reach the pinnacle of your career, the demons start to come out. And mm -hmm. I'm sure you've got to, you know, not only is it, as you've described things, you know, from a balance of hate and love, but it's also, you know, your own personal demons. And probably the biggest issue of all of this is social media, right? I mean, there's the pressure. I mean... In the old days, who would see some of these things happen? Well, millions on TV, but then it's just spread on social media. Could you believe the amount of social media that Will Smith got last week? And not defending either Chris Rock or Will Smith, but I think there's a poignant point that young people like me are too scared to fail um, because everything that we do now is on a pedestal on social media. We can't fail in silence. Um, everything we do is documented online. Uh, most of our creative endeavors are online on Instagram and TikTok, but I think loads of people are discouraged when they see something like that unfold to go online and create content because they know if they do the one thing wrong that 
their whole character will be um, ripped apart. So they're too scared to, to fail. Um, I think people are, because they see these polished celebrities on social media too, um, they use perfectionism to hide behind as well. They, Like I said, they don't want to fail in public, so they don't suck at something for so long until they get great at it because they'll see someone uh, like Will Smith uh, fail on such a huge stage that they're put off to even start their most minute creative endeavour. Um, and I guess if, if if Will Smith was Scottish, he wouldn't have slapped Chris Rock. He would have given him a Glasgow kiss. Do you know what that is, Andy? Well, I feel like in Gla Glasgow's the knife capital of the world, right? Is this something to do with that? <laughs> no, it's a headbutt, Andy. Oh, okay. A headbutt. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Glasgow kiss. Um, but, but that being said, though, I think... Yeah, seeing celebrities fail on such a huge scale. And you'll know this through your story, and you presented that back on, on my podcast. I think and until you hear your story, Andy, from front to back, you'll realise that failing is part of the entire journey. And I think when we just see this short, sharp snapshot of a window, such as Chris Rock and Will Smith, it will discourage young people to put themselves there on, out there online and fail in the public domain. Well, David, think about it. Like, the parallel for me would be that my fame came from a one minute line, right? In a documentary. And I'm not saying that Will Smith and Chris Rock weren't already famous, but this will go down in history. This one minute period of time of Chris making a joke and Will's reaction will go down in history as one of the biggest, you know, probably the biggest fuck ups that ever happened at the Oscars. And, um, it's so interesting to think about, you know, one little piece of time and what damage it can do or what an impact it can make. And it is challenging. I mean, obviously, I touch on failure every day, as you know, and failure is something that's so, so difficult to work with and handle. And the fact that I had a pretty successful career for so many years and got known for one failure and to date, still, David, it's a challenge. I mean, it is a challenge. And many people go, oh, no, 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 you're not hiring. Don't, you're bringing in Andy King. Why would you ever do that? You want a fire festival on your hands? I'm like, I wasn't responsible for that thing. I went in to save it. I had six weeks, but it's incredible, right? It's a little clip of time and what that can do to impact people's lives. What I love about your story, though, Andy, is that you've fully embraced that one line. Like, your whole podcast is named Fully Prepared, and you have turned that one scene into so much public good. Um, you've embraced it, and I, I, I am looking, not looking forward, but I am, I, I'm going to be watching to see how Chris Rock or Will Smith try to resolve that situation in the public domain by doing some sort of good from it. Uh, I don't know how you would approach something like that uh, retrospectively, but... Yeah, hopefully they can turn it into some sort of wider good like you have with uh, your one line from uh, Fire Festival. <laughs> I think, I mean, it's a, I, it's, I think that Will and his wife have a very complicated relationship. There's been a story I've heard that Chris Rock and, and Will's wife had a little bit of a relationship. I mean, there's all sorts of things that go around. I feel like Will... And Jada have been public about a lot of their challenges and have been out there, you know, talking about it publicly. But um, as I said to Craig, you know, to snap like that, there's got to be some deep, deep demons. And for him to be yelling from the audience and screaming fuck, 
like in front of the world, there's some big demons there. And yeah. it's not just the joke from Chris Rock, that's for sure, right? There's a lot going on. I think he let out his rage for the entire situation with his wife, not let out rage just for the one joke. It seemed like a lot of pent-up frustration um, regarding their relationship being so visible in the public domain. Um, and as, as you may have seen, he laughed at the joke and then his wife gave him the look of, I'm not happy with this. So it looked like he had to take control and be, quote unquote, the man of the relationship. What is what society would call the man of a relationship would be, which would be to defend his wife. Um, and I think he just kind of outlaid this kind of grossly violent um, response that was reflective of not Chris Rock's joke, but just the whole relationship end to end and it being in the public domain, uh, uh, as visible as it was. Yeah, and I feel like Craig has been reading Will's book. And I think, you know, he came from a volatile background, you know, he came from socially challenged economic background as well. And so, you know, there could be all different kinds of things. So, you know, thinking about it that way too, David, and in your situation, what words of wisdom do you have for, you know, some of the kids from some of these poorer neighborhoods that you're trying to counsel and, and, and get into the job world? Um, you know, often the parents hold so many insecurities that come off onto the kids, right? And that can be a big challenge. Um, you know, what words of wisdom do you have? Do you have for the parents and the kids, where you're like, you know what? There's a better world out there than what you're facing every day, and it's achievable, and you can get there. Um, it's not easy, though, right, David? I mean, how do you handle that with these kids every day that you're dealing with? I I wrote a piece recently called. Um, how to master your mid-twenties. And it was just three simple points of what I would, what advice I'd give to myself knowing what I know now on the journey that I've been on. And the first one would be to treat yourself like a holdings company or like a, like a business that sell products. Um, the, the corporate culture or the company culture is your values as a human being. You're the proprietor, you're the business owner. And your, your products are the domains, hobbies, and experiences that you have. And what that does, if you treat life like that, is that you create something called identity capital. And you can take that into a job uh, interview, or you can take it into the workplace and cash it in. It is capital. These societal traits and tastes can be cashed in for reward. If you've been on a ski holiday that a boss has been on, you'll rekindle over that. Um, so I would say don't be selective to a single domain. Um, productize yourself. Have numerous facets. I have my podcast, I do my social mobility work, I have my day job as a consultant, I write stuff online. Uh, I think secondly as well is embrace transparency. Um, show up to the world as your true self because only you can. Embrace your weirdness. And I think that I have this concept of creating one true connection. As a disadvantaged young person, I wish I just created one true connection when I was 16 or 17. And how I would define as a, tr a true connection is just sharing with one person my highlights, my lowlights, my desired outcomes, my shortcomings. And there's three reciprocal effects that might happen if you do that. The first one is that they don't align. And that's fine. You learn from their story, they learn from you, you move on separate ways. The second facet or the second outcome can be that they don't align with you and they don't understand your story, they don't relate with it, but they know someone who might and they pass you on to them, you do the exact same thing again, and then it creates a spider web kind of compound interest effect. 
or the third result of that would be that they totally align with your story, totally align with your ideologies and your background and your desired outcomes, and they become either part of your tribe or they become your role model if they're more senior than you. Um, and I think my third piece of advice would be to, like we said earlier, fuck with failure. Typically, when you're young, you have less capital at risk. Um, our actions and our um, creative endeavours should have less of a collateral effect because we don't have families and spouses. Um, and don't be scared to fail in the public domain. Um, so I think my three top tips looking back at my story would be to um, build it into the build identity capital through productizing myself find a tribe or role models um through creating one true connection and lastly uh fuck with failure uh, i hope i can swear in the podcast but i've already dropped the f-bomb a few times andy <laughs> as you know not a problem no not over here um i like that i mean having those philosophies i think is important and it does make it sound like you're creating an achievable timeline and an, an achievable approach for a lot of the kids when you, when they're, or parents, as they're looking at this potentially intimidating journey. I think for me personally, and tell me that this world has completely gone by, but that I always find that like manners are so important and how you shake a hand and looking at somebody in the eye and what are you wearing and how do you hold your cutlery at dinner? Remember to put your napkin on your lap and don't talk with your mouth full of fucking food. Like, I mean, you just go through a list of stuff, but then you'll probably tell me, Andy, it doesn't fucking matter anymore. You should see some of the top executives at some of these firms. I mean, you go to a meeting in LA and the, someone pulls up in a, you know, $150,000 Tesla wearing ripped jeans and a t-shirt that's dirty. They don't give a shit. Like they've now turned it on you where... The worse clothes you wear, the more power and the more money you have. It's sort of this, it's crazy to me. Like, I'm still the guy that's always going to be the, the best dressed person in the room. I'll always be that person. I have pride, you know. I'm always going to have linen napkins when people come to our house for lunch or dinner. We're always going to have the proper cutlery. I'm always going to hope that you're going to be wearing the right thing. But every once in a while, you know, and Craig will always say to me, Andy, you have no filter. Because literally, like, <laughs> someone will walk into a restaurant or something, and I'll look around, and I'll go, really? Like, you're wearing pajamas. And Craig's like, will you shut the fuck up? You can't be taught. I said, I don't, I've got nothing to lose. Don't these people know? But, I mean, what do you see today, David? I must disagree with you, Andy. I really encourage um, everyone to just dress how they wish and act how they, how they do. And I think not because of this kind of move to, like, a woke society, but more so for the effect of that might have on the individual so if you turn up basically perpetuating the archetype further into existence of what an accountant might look like by wearing a suit when you don't have to wear a suit to the office that has a great uh i guess disadvantage to social mobility because when i was growing up i never thought a lower class man from presswick could be an accountant because an accountant in my head uh the archetype of an accountant was a rich middle class middle-aged man in a suit uh but i think it not showing up to the world, wearing what you want and acting how you do can have a great detrimental effect to the individual because they wear a facade, they wear an ego, they wear a persona. And when they present this to the world and someone compliments it, they don't feel it. It's the facade, the ego, the persona that gets the praise. The ego is only available to receive praise, not love. 
So I think it has a great like emotional effect if you don't turn up to the world being authentic, dressing the way you want, styling your, the, your hair the way you want to, having the appropriate mannerisms that uh, you might have. So I would encourage the individual as a, a 20-something year old to uh, just continue doing what you're doing. <laughs> but David, like, I know you have to be like Craig a little bit. Like every once in a while, Craig will wear, you know, an incredible suit and do something and he feels fucking great. And he stands there with such pride and he's like, I feel great. I don't feel like that's like a fake, you know, um, a fake egotistical, but yeah, he's feeding his ego, but he feels really good. And I'm always trying to encourage, you know, even my nephews who like would just turn up in the worst fucking clothes you've ever seen. And then suddenly I would just secretly like every holiday, I give them a couple nice good shirts. And then suddenly they just come down at a dinner wearing a really cool shirt and some nice pants. Like, hey, what do you think? I'm feeling pretty good. And I feel like often if that's not taught to kids at a young age, and I'm not saying it's the end all, but I feel like, but David, you don't want to look like an idiot or an ass walking into a room. You want to look like the cute guy coming in, right? Definitely. I think taking personal responsibility of your hygiene and your presentation and ultimately your bedroom does have a reciprocal effect on other aspects of your life. If your room's not clean, how can your schedule be clean? If your schedule's not clean, how can your relationships be clean? I understand that kind of principle. Um, and I guess all humans kind of cohesively desire the, the, the feeling of importance. It's the one trait that all humans cohesively possess. And one thing that I'm really excited to do at some point within the work in social mobility that I do is to invite the hard to reach community into the office. And the reason that I want to do that is because when I was 15 or 16 from the background that I'm from, I went to London for the first time. Uh, I, I visited, I left Scotland for the first time and went to London uh, and I was invited to KPMG on work experience. And it was the first time I wore a suit and it was the first time I went into a big glossy HQ building. It was the first time I feel? felt important. I felt amazing. Yeah, it was the first time good. I felt, I felt important. And I realized that it's the one trait that all humans cohesively possess. So at some point in my career, I would love to reach out and find the hard to reach community, whether that's the traveling community, um, people who are perhaps subject to being refugees or um, living homeless or ex-offenders and to give them a grant to, to buy a suit, to buy a nice shirt and to come into our big glossy office in Glasgow and meet with people like me and meet some of our senior executives to feel important and fair enough, they might, they'll never join KPMG, but hopefully they'll take that feeling of importance into other aspects, that feeling of personal responsibility into other aspects, and hopefully for the UK, that will improve social mobility. I love that. That's so cool. Because we have a lot of programs here in the States where you can donate clothes to people looking for jobs. And um, there's a few different organizations I've donated to. So I love that idea. That's pretty cool. All right, you touched on you touched on something that is very near and dear to my heart. Your bedroom. I don't need to know what you're doing in your bedroom, but I always tell people how important it is to make your fucking bed every day. And my dad was a fanatic about it, you know, and it was one of those things that we had to make our bed. And you know, I always try to teach people like it's just so important to like 
at the end of the day when you get home, that you don't walk into chaos, that you come home and your bed is made and your clothes aren't all over the floor and there isn't shit everywhere and there aren't dishes piling out of the sink. Like, it's not that difficult to always take a few minutes to make these things happen. And I'm so happy you mentioned that because I'm a firm believer in you got to keep your bedroom pretty neat. And doing so, I feel like, can help create and chart a good course for an organized life and a fairly organized workplace and work ethic, right? For sure. I think the state of someone's bedroom is a reflection of their mind. If your bedroom's cluttered, your, your mind will be cluttered. And like you said, if you have the worst day in the world, if your boss is shouting at you, your girlfriend's breaking up with you, your boyfriend's arguing with you, if you go home and your bed's made, you have that kind of micro-dosed sense of achievement. And I guess it's how we frame things that is important. I have a gratitude journal that's so important to me that lives beside my neatly made bed. And every single night before bed, whether I've had a great day or a horrible day, I'll write three things that I'm grateful for and three grateful, uh, three things I'm grateful for and three things that were great that I experienced that day. And just framing my mind to look for the positives in my day and the achievements in the day like flips my mood and making my bed is always God, one of them. David, you, you brought up a great, I used to have my little gratitude notebook and I'm going to do it again. You're totally right because in this crazy world, right? It's your mind has the ability to spiral into just the worst directions. And, you know, Craig will always say to me, um, what's wrong? I'm like everything. <laughs> and he'll say, Andy, don't go there. Don't go there. I'm like, no, 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 you're right. You're right. I just need to step back. I need to step back. But, you know, my mom would always say, nothing's easy. Anything that's good in life is never easy. It's just not easy. And we have to remind ourselves that every day, especially, can you imagine being homeless or being a refugee? Like, uh, you know, we joke about RPP, rich people's problems, but, you know, I'm certainly not the rich man i was once and may never be again, but money isn't everything. But at the end of the day, you think about Ukraine, you think about all those different situations. And so gratitude is probably, I think, the best mantra to have. I think one thing that I do particularly bad, coming from the background that I do, being in the domain and workplace that I am in, I compare upwards and sidewards too often. I look at people who have came from very different backgrounds and had better privileges than me and I compare my outcomes to them or I compare myself to an ideal state of what good could have looked like, what David could be like if he had X, Y, Z components of luck or if he came from a different background. But what I don't do is reflect backwards to different versions of myself over the last 10 years and understand and appreciate how far I've came. And one thing that I found so powerful during lockdowns when we were so removed from family members and I was forced to work from my bedroom. I had a laptop set up in my bedroom. Um, it was the same room that I slept in, played guitar in, podcasted in. When my day got really hard, I did three tasks or one of three tasks. The first one was to pick up a book called The Forgotten Highlander. And essentially it's a autobiography of a prisoner of war from Scotland who was uh, a prisoner of war in the in Asia during World War Two, and he was subject to torture, um, the death march, um, which was like three hundred miles from Thailand to Burma. Um, he suffered tropical ulcers and 
um, was captured in a prisoner of warship that then got blown up. So just reading a page from that book gave me the most profound perspective of how grateful and how okay my life was at that period of time. The second task I would have done would be to run down my local beach, Presswick Beach. And the reason I would do that is because I would always, always see either someone who was unfortunately disabled, um, perhaps in a wheelchair, or I would see an elderly person, someone who didn't have the capacity that I did to run. And when I was running down the beach, they would always give me this kind of smile of, I wish I could do that. And Andy, I can't explain how much caffeine that gave me. Just that instant reflection of how grateful I was to have all my motor skills and to be fit and young and healthy uh, made lockdown seem uh, almost blissful. And the, the last task I would do would be, if I wasn't to do one of the, the, the first two, would be I'd, I'd go downstairs and speak to my dad, who's a war veteran, and just be like, I'd say to him, Dad, tell me one story from the Falklands War. And he would say something like, okay, there was one night where it was so cold I had to piss on my feet to keep them warm. And I would be like, okay, Dad, that's enough. I'm grateful for my warm bedroom upstairs. Upstairs, I'm going back to work. Um, but it's oh just, it's word. crazy how powerful perspective and gratitude can be. And how do you, you know, <clears throat> it's spreading that around a little bit more is a challenge. And I feel like, um, my sisters are pretty good about being really, really grateful. And it's, you know, you, our minds are powerful things. And they're all, you know, our minds are also our biggest enemies, right? And that's where it's like, okay, creating a curriculum like you do, and obviously as a consultant, your mind works with lists and it works with prioritizing and it works with organization and on and on. And on. But that's amazing. And I think it, it should be something that everybody should be able to embrace in some way. It's like, okay, how do I get my fucking hands around this crazy world I'm in right now? And how I'm like, every day, you know, instead of focusing on the negatives, how do we focus on the positives? And it's hard. It's really hard. I mean, let's just say that, I mean, and I've talked about it a lot, but, you know, mental health issues are just really, really, they're just so blatantly out there right now and there it is such a prime example of will smith and and putin and i don't care what like mental health issues are just it just it's it, i don't think it's addressed enough you know everybody always talks about how do we curb the homeless you know situation and how do we get the numbers down and how do we well Jesus, I mean, the basis of all of that is mental health issues. Don't you agree? Totally. And I, I'm going to pull up my, 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 my wallpaper and read it out to you on my phone because it's a constant reminder. Uh, my wallpaper right now is 99% of the harm is caused by your head, by you and your thoughts. 1% of the harm is caused by reality, what actually happens and the outcome. And I watched this amazing podcast with a gentleman called Mo Goddard. And he basically expressed happiness in a formula. He said happiness occurs when reality is equal to or greater than expectation. Unhappiness is when reality is less than expectations. Our brain creates those expectations. And our brain creates them subconsciously by looking at social media and seeing the highlights of um, influencers and celebrities. And I think what we can do is to have zero expectations or less expectations. And similar to what I said before, not attach yourself to the ideal version of yourself 
or compare sideways to your peers who have very different circumstances. Set your own expectations or have no expectations. Um, because if you actually think about it, that formula makes so much sense. Um, and I have that as my wallpaper every single day as a constant re constant reminder that, uh, yeah, 99% of my problems are um, created by my own head and 1% uh, reflects reality. Jeez, David. <clears throat> Such a blessing. Like, it's crazy. How do you pack all this wisdom into your little 20-something-year-old body? <laughs> I don't know. If you can see my hairline, it's receding. I think uh, my, my, my head's getting too big for my for the rest of my body. Perhaps that's what it is, Andy. <laughs> I mean... It, it's, it is interesting to, you know, touch on subjects that aren't hysterical. They're not that funny. They're not that, but you have to bring, and I think one of the issues, and I think you're pretty good at it, and I try to be good at it, but then sometimes I feel like I'm losing it a little bit. It's like a lot of my friends will say, Andy, just remember, <clears throat> you've always had the funniest fucking sense of humor of anybody we know. Don't lose the humor. You've got to continue to spread love through your humor. And... It's challenging, you know, I mean, my life of being like Mr. Sustainability and and I'm always trying to promote zero waste events and, and how to do things and how to protect our planet and focus a little bit on social economic situations that aren't as positive. So um, bringing in the Boys and Girls Club to help with staffing issues with large events or focusing on eliminating plastic or all these different things. And my friends would go, Andy, oh, this shit's just unbelievable. Like, can't you just keep being funny? I'm like, okay, I'm just trying <laughs> to come up with that balance of, you know, once again, like, you know, you're I, when you're known as the, you know, the biggest dick sucker in the world, like, that's <laughs> funny enough. But then how do you, like, continue on carrying the balance of, like, spreading love, being funny, but also addressing reality right and reality is i need to make a living i need to be hired to do big events you know I'd, I'd like to balance my work and personal life and have you know a really a good family life with craig and um you know those are all challenges that everybody faces every day but i guess you know being grateful and you've done such a great job and like really putting that to ease and writing three things down at the end of every day that you're most grateful for, but then also just trying to find the fucking joy in things that we do, right? Isn't that important? 100%. There's joy to be found in washing up a plate, feeling the warm water under your hands as you wash a plate in the sink. There's joy from that. Um, I think just being more present in everything that we do, find joy in everything that we do is pro probably quite a powerful message. And uh, you said that you are known as the the biggest dick sucker. I hope that after sharing my story that people won't uh, start calling me the biggest dick sucker after um, how egotistical I feel after being on your podcast, Andy, sharing the same platform as you. <laughs> no, you're too kind. You're much nicer than I am, David, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, I do feel like, you know, when you, when in retrospect, like looking at all of our, your situation, my situation, the parallels are, can be very strong, but I think you can find that so often in so many different lives, different kinds of backgrounds. And it's kind of just how you approach things every day. And obviously I love the fact that you approach things in such a uh, methodical way, um, but with a methodical way. So total honesty, like do you suffer from FOMO like 99.9% .9 of the world? Yeah, I, I do, Andy. Um, what are you, human or something? I can't believe it. You're that human. 
but I, 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 as a young person, like I'm not the kind of typical man from the west coast of Scotland. I'm not partying, drinking all the time. As much as I do do those things, like having a podcast is such an unconventional thing for a 23-year-old. And I heard this great quote, and it's, loneliness is a tax that you pay to be a certain complexity of mind. And I noticed as I've niched into having a podcast and practicing self-development, my tribe has diminished. But it's now people that align to my values and the the kind of framing that I see life in. And although I have less friends now and less of a tribe, those connections are deeper than they would be uh, as if I continued presenting this version of myself that wasn't true to the world and surrounding myself with people that uh, aren't uh, aligned with my values and um, my hobbies and interests that are truly innate to me. Well, you know, just be careful. I, I had a, a psychiatrist years ago that I used to work with and I used to say to him, I feel like the busiest lonely person you'll ever meet or the loneliest busy person you'll ever meet. And um, I never... I never took the time to, you know, have the right amount of intimacy in my life and personal relationships that were very, very close. I was always surrounded by 20 or 30 people, always. But at the end of the day, through time and experiences and age, how blessed am I to meet Craig and um, to have him in my life to help me balance that. And it's important. So... That's probably one of my little recommendations to you because it's, it is great to be able to, yeah, I mean, you're in your twenties, you got to have fun. You got to go out there. You got to play a little bit. And hopefully in the near future, you're going to have a wife and some babies and you're never going to be able to go out and do the things that you really probably thought you should have done, or hopefully you'll get God that forbid her. God forbid her. God forbid her, Andy. I feel sorry for her already. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. You're going to make the bed. The kids' clothes are going to be organized. <laughs> You're going to be like the dream husband. Are you kidding me? Absolutely. But it is that balance, right? And I think that it's the challenge. It's like, okay, I mean, <clears throat> you still want to have fun. But what I see you're doing, which I think is so important, and I feel like it's interesting. Craig's in the real estate world now. And we're learning right now that so many hedge funds and financial firms here in the States are buying up as many houses as as, pro as possible right now, because kids like you are might might say moving forward, I don't want a big fucking house that I have to worry about the gardens and mowing the lawn and painting it. No, no, no. We're going to rent a house for many, many years and we can just, it'll be taken care of. And it could even be a townhome, you know, or a, a, a attached living. I don't know how you guys describe it more, but here we just say it's a condominium, but that because you want to have the, the, the ability to go off and do what you want when you want to do it and not be worrying about being like laden with these financial stresses of some big house and what have you. And I feel like so moving forward, you know, you'll have the ability probably to hopefully with all the great things you're working on right now, the goal would be to retire at a younger age, right? And be able to travel and do cool things later in life that you weren't able to experience in your younger years. And I think, what do you think about that? I mean, that process becomes easier when I've got great role models like you, Andy, to, to lean on and, and, and to, to follow. Um, I, I know there was a study that showed that in like the 80s and 90s, the average um, person had like one or two careers. And that's because loyalty meant success back then. 
uh, and people would buy their home and live in the same town for the rest of their life. But they did a study recently, and I think millennials on average have 16 careers within their lifetime. And if I go back to my first rule of my rules for mid-20-somethings, it's to productize yourself. And you do that by having different types of careers and having different experiences. Um, so I think in my 20s and in my 30s, I will be agile. I'll say yes to more opportunities. I'll travel. And I think it'll be a bit longer until I own my own place. That's for sure. I feel like you're, you're, you've got your handle on things right now at a young age. That's amazing. You should be writing a book, which I'm probably sure you probably are starting to write a little. If you're, if you're keeping your gratitude notes, you're probably keeping a journal. Are you a journal? I, I do have a journal. Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah, you, you've good. read me so well. Um, I think I want to write a book on social mobility at some point in my life. Um, I think we address social mobility from the wrong angle in the UK. Um, I think a lot of the invisible barriers to social mobility come from childhood trauma and um, inner beliefs that stem from childhood experiences and I, as I start to unpick and learn about my own childhood and how that's affected the man I am today, I start to journal that down and hopefully at some point I either post it as a blog or write it online somewhere. Um, but yeah, I think I'd like to write a memoir at some point, whether that's a blog or a book or uh, a monologue on a podcast, I don't know. But yeah, definitely considering wow. Andy. I mean... Social mobility is something that is, it's, it's everywhere. It's in every country. It affects, I think, all walks of life. And, um, you know, especially now, I feel like with, with Gen Zs, Gen Xs, and Millennials, you are what you wear, you are what you eat, you are where you go, you are what you drive. I mean, that pressure. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't that way years and years ago, but I think it's just become that much more, you know, uh, you know, it's just magnified now, I feel like, and that kind of pressure, oh my gosh, for young kids like you, holy smokes. Uh, the first stage or first ring of pressure that I found in that aspect was when I turned 17 and could get a car, and Craig might agree, in the west coast of Scotland, cars for young people or a way to signal. I think in Scotland, a lot of us young men and women um, lease and take on a lot of debt and lease a car that's probably more expensive um, and too expensive to, in relative to their uh, income. And it's not just like a financial contract, it's a life contract. I spoke about how the average millennial has 16 careers. You spoke about how millennials are not owning their own houses. Um, and that's probably dampened by the fact that some individuals will have to stay in their own hometown and stay in the same jobs and not get those 15 other jobs because they have this flashy car. It's a life contract. And the thing is, the only reason they get a flashy car is because it's a universal language that everyone can understand. If I said to you, Andy, this is a sure, I don't even know the model of this microphone, but if I were to try and signal to you how great this microphone was, you may not understand the value and how expensive it was, therefore you wouldn't understand the reflection of my worth. But if I said to you, Andy, I, I, I drive a Porsche or a Ferrari, you would probably subconsciously presume that I'm of high status and high value if I can afford a car because we all understand how great a Ferrari is and how shit a Prius is. Sorry, Toyota, I know you're not sponsoring this. But you know what I mean? I think in Scotland, 
especially, but probably broader in, in, in America, us young men and women signal our worth to society by what car we drive or what designer brands we wear. And that prohibits their ability to create those products as if they were a business and have those experienced. Eventually, they can cash in for a award in the workplace, but also a romantic partner. Having these tastes and traits and experiences are amazing conversation points at the bar uh, to f f create that one tr true connection with someone from the opposite sex or the same sex. Um, so I think one of the, the, the first obstacles that I saw was the pressure for me to have a nice car at, at 17 uh, when I passed my test. <clears throat> that sometimes just doesn't go away either, that darn pressure and that feeling. And I, I joked with Craig, um, with the gas prices that are so high right now and with my whole dedication to sustainability, probably not the right thing for us to be driving these Range Rovers. And so I said to Craig last week, look, I found a Prius. And he said, I, I can't, I can't drive a Prius. I'm sorry. I just can't drive a Prius. I'm like, oh, come on. Just a Prius? No, no, please. I have a little more integrity. <laughs> I said, well, all right, because you drive a turbocharged, you know, Range Rover Sport that everybody dreams of having. Well, guess you shouldn't have to, but it's the right thing we should be doing is driving a Prius that gets great mileage, you know. And then I, you look at people like Leonardo DiCaprio or Mark Ruffalo. They drive Priuses in Hollywood, but then they live in a you know $40 million mansion. So I guess they've got that <laughs> balance. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't quite have that balance yet, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> it may take a little bit of time, just a little, but you know. I could teach you a few things. You could blow your way to the top if you wanted to, David. But probably... <laughs> I always say we are both the, the ultimate team players, Andy, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, sometimes you just got to do whatever you've got to do to get there. That's why we have fully prepared. And I think you're fully prepared to do a lot of different things. And I think what you're demonstrating, though, David, which I love and we'll wrap up in a sec, is that um, it's not easy getting jobs, maintaining jobs, meeting the right people. These are all things that are challenging that you're showing the world that they can be done. And that that to me is like the signs of being an ultimate team player. It doesn't have to be about finding every cock in the bathroom and sucking on it just to get the, the you know, and I don't know, maybe you'll do that for, the, for your promotion, but um, hopefully not. Hopefully the focus is more about spreading love the way you do and doing it in a way which is what your niche is now, which I love. It's just focusing on, obviously, the socioeconomic backgrounds that are more challenging and being able to be an inspiration to all these kids to say, hey, I can get out of where I am now and I can get a good job and I can make a difference. And even if it's with a small company, even if it's with a startup, that's, but at least maybe it's companies that are doing good things and driving positive change. I mean, I feel like you're a pretty cool inspiration for that. So thank you for doing that. Thanks, Andy. And that's why I was so keen to come on your podcast, because hopefully someone from a background like mine sees my story, finds some solace in it. And it's the whole principle of if you can see it, you can be it. And hopefully someone might pick up the podcast microphone for the first time or apply for a big four organization just because they heard my story. When I started to share my story more publicly, I remember... Um, someone told me, David, you're so brave for your story, for sharing your story. Or I have a story just like yours. I would never share it. You're so brave to share it. And through the work that I've been doing recently with the podcast and in the social mobility space, 
people ask me, David, what's the greatest KPI of your work so far? And I would say, I don't have one. I have an EPI, an emotional performance indicator. And that would be that I'm no longer classified in the workplace as brave for sharing my story because people feel empowered to do the same. So I hope at least one person out there listening to your podcast shows up as their true self and embraces perhaps the fact that they do come from a low socioeconomic background and understands that they have the agency to tra- to change that. Um, you just have to have the right resources and find the right resources and the right people. And we all have access to that through um, social media and through, and through media, directly or indirectly. And hopefully <clears throat> the parents that are listening too can say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm inspired right now to maybe to try to influence my kids in a more positive way. And I think that that's important where I'm sure you've seen in the world that you're working with that often parents of less fortunate backgrounds don't encourage their kids to get out there and to try to break out of that pattern because they feel insecure about it. And then suddenly they feel like their child, their children are smarter than they are and things just begin to spin out of control. But you know what? It's okay. It's okay to let your kids, you know, let their wings fly, you know, let them get out there and do the best that they can. But it can be really hard from a parenting perspective to watch that happen, right? Totally. My, my mom and dad didn't have any education. They left school dead young. And they had no expectations of me because when I was choosing my career, I had already at that point at the age of 15 or 16 surpassed the level of qualifications and education that they did. So they had no expectations of me. And that can be either empowering because you can pave your own way. You don't have a tiger parent telling you to be a lawyer or be a doctor. You can pave your own way. Or it can be completely paralyzing and you fall into the traits and tastes and beliefs and the outcome and the circle of life that your parents do. Um, but if you're a high agency individual, um, hopefully the individual will take the, the, the first option and pave their own way and understand that not having expectations set upon you by parents uh, can be empowering. Wow. Well, you are empowering. Let me tell you something. For a 23-year-old, you're packing a big punch in just a few years. I wish I had the, I wish I had the wisdom at 23 that you have now. But... That's all good. You've got, you know, you might, maybe, I'm not saying, you know, <clears throat> you're not going to take my route <clears throat> to become famous. You're taking a different route, which I think is pretty important. And being that positive inspiration, I think is so great. All right. So David, so as we wrap up, <clears throat> I always ask my guests at the end of, you know, every show. So what do you think in like, what comes to mind? What's the, Biggest thing you've ever had to do to take one for the team. Oh. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be sexual, David. Okay. It can okay, be okay. just, that, yeah. <laughs> that, that's 12 items off my list then. Let me try and Okay, good. One. There you go. Now, I mean, I when, think... when have you felt like you'd had to just go the extra mile? Like you just couldn't believe you were doing something that you had, that you had to do. Or that you did it because you wanted to do it. But what, what, you know, what makes you the ultimate team player? What instance comes to mind? I think having my podcast must be that. Um, putting myself out there in such a volatile platform to be so open to critique and being the voice for my community, I think that's um, that's probably where I've found that I've taken the biggest um, 
the the biggest load. Uh, <laughs> pardon the pun. Um, but like I said, in the west coast of Scotland, it's so unconventional to be a podcaster to do anything that's not playing football, drinking at the weekends. Um, but I was frustrated by the lack of digital and physical role models that I had. I wanted to bridge that gap. I realized there was a gap in the market to do that. I wanted other people to have the digital role models that I had growing up. Thankfully, at that time, I was verbose enough to understand the very technical podcasts that were out there. Nothing spoke to me in my slang voice and my accent uh, using my vocabulary. So I wanted to be that digestible platform for self-development and that's why i use origin stories such as yours andy and i outlay them in the most digestible colloquial manner i i do that i guess um as taking one for the team um and i swallow that load every single week when i record an episode there you go the ultimate team player i love it okay so david tell everybody how how they can listen to your podcast and um how they can reach out to you they can reach out to me on instagram at development by david or my personal, if you want to become friends, David McIntosh Jr. for Junior. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as David McIntosh. The podcast is on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as The Development by David Podcast. And please, please check out my wonderful episode with Andy here. Uh, we had such a great laugh. Talking about all things Scottish culture, Buckfast, Fire Festival, it's fantastic. Um, <laughs> Andy, thank you for having me on. Hey, thank you for being on today. Absolutely. And wishing you all the best. David, keep spreading the love and all the positivity.